You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Since the first Sunday after Easter, we have been in the New Testament book of James. Now, next week, I won't be here because Lori and I will be celebrating our 40th anniversary. I know you can't believe she is stuck with me. Okay. So next Sunday, you're going to be ministered to by Travis Teague, provided his, you know, probation officer allows him that clearance. And then the following week, July 16th, we will finish this New Testament letter written by James, Jesus' little brother. The whole book of James has been very practical. It's about how you take your faith and not just let it live on the pages in theory, but how to live it out in your life practically and daily. And today's topic is, how does faith work when you're suffering? So if I were to ask, how many of you are going through something right now that you would call it your suffering? Almost every one of us could raise our hands. And if you're not suffering right now, give it a minute. And anything that doesn't prepare you for reality in this life is not helpful. And the Bible is the most honest book that's ever been written. And it talks about the pains, the problems, the perils of living in this fallen world. And how when we suffer, our faith needs to activate so that we can make it through. James in chapter 3 talked about blessing and cursing, and he puts blessing and cursing side by side. And let me say this, blessing is from God, cursing is from Satan. So you can look at your past and you can put grace on it, or you can look at your past and put condemnation on it. One is from God, one is from Satan. Blessing or cursing? You can look at your present and put hope on it, or you can put hopelessness on it, blessing or cursing. Or you can project out into the future and put faith on it or fear on it, blessing or cursing. And what he tends to What he's talking about, what tends to happen to us is that we go through seasons of life that we feel blessed by God's presence and then almost simultaneously feel cursed when there's oppression upon you or your family. And in these moments of pain and suffering, when life hits, we need to know what to do because ultimately they will come. All that suffering, and it can be emotional. Physical, spiritual, relational, marital, parental. And for some of you, it may be even a combination so that you feel a bit overwhelmed. The question is, or questions maybe, is where is God when this happens? How do we find God? What is God's plan for us? And I think sometimes well-meaning people try to counsel you how to get around your problems, your struggles. For most times, we don't get around them, do we? We have to go through them. So I want to be honest with you. And today, I don't want to just take you to look at your suffering. 
It may be something that you're going through right now, but not just to look at it. My whole prayer and goal for today is that through James chapter 5, it'll be a lens to where we will look through that suffering. Not just at it, but through it. That you would not ignore it, but it would also not be the only thing you concentrate on that's on your horizon. But look through it to the promises of God and how he will bring you through it for his glory and your good. So this section of James starts with two encouragements to extend our view and look through our suffering to God and his eternal purposes for it. The first that God has encouragement for us is that a harvest is coming. Here's how James 5, 7 starts. Be, ooh, what's that word? How many of you don't like that next word? patient. Your hands are already going up. I don't either. I think the microwave takes too long. Elevators are too slow and speed limits are just for those that are too slow. He continues, be patient then brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. He's saying until Jesus comes, be patient. Until Jesus comes back, be patient. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. That's a lot of patience. He keeps going. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently wait for the autumn and spring rains. You to be patient. It's like he's got a theme or something. He, you know why he keeps telling us to be patient? Because we keep forgetting to be patient. Next verse, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The first thing that he's sharing is that in human history, it's like a harvest to a farmer. Now, I grew up in a city, but I know this much. When it comes to farming, planting, there isn't much you can do to hasten the process. Like if you yell at a tree, is it going to produce fruit faster? If you manipulate this tree by crying and throwing a fit, or you try bribing the tree, is it going to produce fruit faster? No, it's not. What if you beg the tree with all you've got? Will the fruit come any faster? What causes it to produce fruit faster? Nothing. It has its own seasons and cycle. What James is saying is that in your life, God intends for your life to be faithful, which means you are going to have to be patient with the process. God is going to have the harvest when it's time. It's not time. Now what happens is we get impatient. We want God to act now. We want God to grow us up now. We want the process to be over with now. But if you're still here, that must mean that his work on you and in you is not done yet. 
And I'm sorry for the suffering that you're going through. But he's going to use that to cause character to grow in you. You know, it says in Hebrews 2.10 that the Lord Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now, that statement might confuse us a bit. I mean, Jesus was already perfect, right? So what does it mean that he becomes perfect through suffering? Well, yes, Jesus was absolutely perfect. He was without sin from start to finish. But as God with us, as God in the flesh, Jesus was completed. That is, he was perfected when he suffered. That he finally and fully experienced everything that we do when he went through his suffering so that he could go to the cross and suffer in our place and die as our Savior. The fruitfulness in your life that causes some suffering is there to build your character because there is something about your character that would not grow if it weren't for that suffering. And as you go through suffering, you're going to appreciate the fact that you have a God who came down to suffer with you and ultimately to suffer for you. You're going to appreciate that you have a God who has a plan to one day end all suffering. In the meantime... James tells us to be patient, and he says it over and over in verse 7, be patient. Verse 8, be patient. We haven't gotten there yet, but verse 10, patience. You know, even if you're not a Christian, you look at this world, and you realize that something has gone terribly wrong. Why is there so much suffering and death when we should be living why so much warring when we should be loving? Why so much attacking when we should be blessing? What has gone wrong in this world? And what that leads us to is a series of potential answers that we have to choose which one is correct for us. Because the decision that you make regarding this question of uh, the problem of evil, we might call it, determines ultimately how you will live and how you will interpret the suffering you're going through and whether you will waste it or invest it. So when it comes to the question of pain and evil and suffering on the earth, there are different perspectives that people can hold. The first option is this. As you're suffering, you just simply come to the conclusion there is no God. That is the conclusion of atheism. Atheism is an answer, but it's not a comfort. Well, there is no God. We come from no one. You're here for no reason. Your suffering is for no reason, and there are no consequences which, are, which you're going to face. The logical outgrowth of atheism in the midst of suffering is a wrecked life. You reach a point where the pain is too great, the suffering too much, and you find no other way through this pain and suffering but to wreck your life to get through it. The second option is that there is a God, but he's just not all-powerful. That's a false teaching that some religions have. It's like he does know, 
He does love, but he's just not powerful enough to do anything to rescue us, to save us, to deliver us, to lift the curse. Again, that's an answer, but it's not comfort. The third option is that God is not all-knowing. That is that God doesn't know the future. He's just like us. He wakes up and finds out what's going on today. Like God would wake up and say, I can't believe that happened. All that option is, is taking our finite humanity and projecting it on to God. The problem with that, among other things, is that the Bible at the time that it was written, 25% of it, one-fourth of the Bible at the time that it was written, was prophetic in nature. That means it was casting, God was casting his vision for what was to come. That's a really odd thing for God to be able to do if he doesn't know what's going to happen. You need to know that God not only knows tomorrow, he knows all of your tomorrows. The fourth option is that God is not all good. Yeah, he's good, but he's also a mixture. He's good and evil. And so when evil happens, that just happens to mean that God chose to do evil that day. That's the view of some Eastern religions and symbolized by the yin and the yang. Again, this is an answer, but it's not a comfort. It's a false answer. Because if you're suffering from God and you run to God, this God who may be good and evil, it just depends. What kind of day are you going to find him on? Maybe he's going to add to your suffering if he's evil. Another option is there's no suffering or evil. That's pluralism. There is no truth. There are no absolutes. There's no reality. It's just your interpretation of it. Again, this is an answer, but it's not a comfort. That particular option is formalized through Buddhism that says reality is just an illusion. You can believe that and go play out on 601 and see if that truck is just an illusion. So this tries to eradicate the categories of good and evil and right and wrong and truth and falsehood and godly and demonic and suffering and blessing. And again, it may be an answer, but it's not a comfort. It's like telling somebody who's suffering, oh, you're not really suffering. You're just looking at it wrong. That's not a comfort. Lastly, the Christian response. God is not done yet. So patiently live by faith. The Bible says there is a God. His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is good. He is altogether good. In him, there is only light. There is no darkness whatsoever. It says that God knows the future, that he is all-powerful, and that to call him Lord denotes his sovereign, unequaled, unprecedented power. The question is, well, if he is that way, then why is life this way? Because he's not done yet. You know, Jesus was crucified and laid in a tomb for three days. And if at any point during those three days you were to walk by, you would have to question God what are you doing? 
Well, he's not done yet. He's going to get up. We just live in the time between the times. This is a time of waiting and trusting and worshiping. And in the language of James 5, when Jesus comes back, there will be a harvest of all the believers. Until then, we are to be about the harvest. We need to be sowing the seeds of the gospel. We need to be seeking to see people meet Jesus so they too can be a part of the harvest. In addition to that, James gives us a second encouragement. To look through our suffering into eternity, and that is God's judgment is coming. Here's the next verse. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. What he's saying is that when Jesus comes, there will be a harvest and there will be a judgment. The harvest is for believers. The judgment is for the unbelievers. And what he's talking about is this. When the Lord Jesus returns, no one knows when that is, by the way. You know, the best-selling Christian books for decades have been those that talk about the end times, eschatology, we call it, as if people know when this is supposed to happen. No one knows when he's going to return. But here's what you've got to know. Our God is not indifferent to suffering. God in Jesus Christ endured all the evil, all the injustice, all the opposition and the lies and the hatred and the conflict and the pride and the selfishness of all people. And there will be a judge for us all and his name is Jesus Christ. And let me say this, if you are not a Christian, you are living in the path of God's wrath You are your own worst enemy. You are the biggest problem you have. You are not the one exception. You are a sinner just like everyone else. So you have two options. You either surrender your life to Jesus and let him be judged for you or you get judged by Jesus. If you are not a Christian, let me explain to you why we love Jesus and why we want you to. Our God knew from the beginning that there would be sin and suffering, and he comes down as our Savior. No other religion in the world understands a God who comes to be personal to us. Every other religion is about us trying to be good enough to earn our way to him, to make him pay attention to us if we do enough good things. We can't do enough good things. We are born as sinners, and we choose to be sinners. Our God had to do something. He comes down. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had the option of staying in heaven, a perfect paradise, or coming down to earth, Jesus was in an environment where there was no sin and suffering, and he comes down into an environment of sin and suffering. Jesus was in an environment 
where there was no death. And he comes down into an environment of death. He was in an environment of pure peace. And he comes down into an environment of pure chaos. And Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live, the perfect life. I've been a pastor for 32 years, and I'll never get over the incredible mystery and humility of Jesus Christ. He came down, and he doesn't sin, but he suffers. And he suffers and dies on a cross so that you and I could live. So think about it this way. If the best person ever went through the worst suffering ever, why do we think we won't suffer? You see, we worship a Savior who suffered. And he suffered so that you and I can have eternal life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest news ever told. So if you, don't need, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know Jesus. If you have not given your sin to Jesus, you need to give your sin to Jesus. And there are two options. Again, Jesus will be judged for you so that he can save you from your sin and suffering. Or you will be judged by Jesus for all your sin and be sentenced for eternity in a living hell. Look, my job is to tell you the truth. Your job is to make the most important decision you will ever make. And that is, will Jesus be your judge or will he be judged for you on your behalf? James is putting this all in the context of suffering. Yes, we suffer to varying degrees while here on earth, but be aware of the suffering you cause to the Savior. And James wants us to look through our suffering to Jesus. Now, James goes on. Next verse. Brothers and sisters, and as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. So James' first example to us are the prophets. Now, we tend to think of the prophets as the superheroes, right? I mean, think about some of the stories, you know, Elijah was able to call down fire from heaven. Isaiah got to see God in all of his majesty on his throne. But here's what I want you to know. They were all profoundly human. This same Elijah, just moments, it seems like, at least by Scripture standards, just moments after calling fire down from heaven, runs and hides, and he's scared for his life because somebody's after him. They were very human. They weep, they bleed, they struggle, they question, they suffer. Here's how the prophet works. God says something to them. They then say what God says to the people. The people do not want to hear it. They do not like it. They do not want to receive it. They are not going to celebrate it. And the only way to stop hearing it is to destroy the prophet so he stops saying it. The prophet's job is to tell the truth. Their job is not to worry about their popularity or their favorability or their reputation or even their own life. 
Their job was to tell the truth because, as Jesus would say, the truth sets people free. It's the same today. People don't want to hear about holiness and obedience and truth. Things are not trending in our culture toward freedom and faith and family. That's why so many who are supposed to teach God's word are instead editing or apologizing for it. But at the end of the day, the question is, are we going to offend them? Are we going to offend him? The prophet patiently endured in the face of suffering. James continues with a second example. Next verse. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Okay, Job. It's a book of the Old Testament. It's a lengthy book. The main character is a guy by the name of Job. Not a trick question, guys. And all that he has are bad days. You keep reading, you're like, okay, where's his good day? The end. It starts by understanding that Job is wealthy. He's healthy. He's got a big family. He's got 10 kids. And he looks blessed. And then the bottom falls out of his life. He loses all of his livestock. His business goes bankrupt. And the worst thing that I can conceive of, his kids die. He's sitting on the ground, his body literally broken out with sores. He doesn't know where God is or what God is doing. And for 37 chapters, here's Job. God, where are you? Why? Why is this happening? When is this ending? He's got a few people who walk with him, like his wife, who says, oh, just curse God and die, will you? Thank you, honey, for the discouragement and faithlessness. And then he has a couple of friends that are theologians of sorts that are no help at all. They show up and they're like, okay, we reason that you're suffering because of sin. Sin brings suffering. Therefore, look how great you're suffering, Job. Man, what have you done? He's like, I, I don't know. I, I'm not perfect. But I don't have a grievous sin to acknowledge. Some of you are good people and bad things are happening to you. Some of the bad in my life, I can't blame anyone else. I, I brought it on myself. For 37 chapters, Job is trying to figure all of this out. We know something that he doesn't. That our personal relationship with God really involves three entities. Three persons, if you will. It's God, it's Job, and it's Satan. In addition to God and Job, there is Satan who comes to God and says, the only reason Job is praising you is because you've blessed him. I bet you if you stop blessing him, he will start cursing you. Job has no idea why he's suffering. Sometimes you have no idea why you're suffering. Sometimes there's no answer for the suffering. But there is a God 
to carry you through the suffering. The whole backdrop of the book of Job is spiritual warfare. Sometimes the worst things happen to the most godly people. Ultimately, that's the example of Jesus. Well, you look at Job, a human being. How did he get up every day and not curse God? How did he do it? You've got to extend your horizon. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Now, it's not first. We know that. Genesis starts the Bible. Job is about midway through the Old Testament. But it is the oldest book in the Bible. So he is the first person to write about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he is coming. Here's what Job says in chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. If Jesus doesn't rise, we have no hope. But he's alive. And that in the end, that's thousands of years later, he will stand on the earth. Job is looking through the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. That's faith. That's patience. He's peering down the corridor of history through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying eventually Jesus will come, and then he'll come again, and all will be better. He continues, and after my skin has been destroyed... Yet in my flesh, I will see God. Job is saying, not only is Jesus coming to rise from the dead, he's coming again to raise me from the dead. He says, I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and no other. How, your, how my heart yearns within me. He's saying, I can't wait to look at Jesus in the eye. Now, there's one more verse from James chapter 5 for today. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to, oh, sorry, that's it. Um, no, there is one more. Sorry. <laughs> Keep going. Thanks, Gary. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Now, that final verse doesn't seem to connect with the whole theme of suffering. Let me show you how it does. What James is saying here is don't make these emotional short-term, short-sighted promises, oaths, vows when you're under pressure because you'll always regret it. James, in fact, is quoting his big brother, Jesus, who said this in Matthew chapter 5. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. And a few verses later, he said this. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. We are supposed to covenant with God to be patient through our suffering. The counterfeit of that? is a vow or an oath, not with God, but with ourselves. So that when you're hurting and you're broken and you're suffering, when you are exhausted, you are vulnerable. And usually that oath or that vow comes out accompanied with words like, no one, 
never again. No one will ever do this to me. No one will ever say this to me. Never again will I allow this to happen. And usually it's a bitterness. It's an unhealed hurt. It's a brokenness caused by genuine suffering. And the thought is, this is so painful that I need to make an oath or a vow to protect myself. That's the opposite of faith. And when we go through suffering, we don't want to see it happen again. We don't control the future. We're not God. We want to be. Because we think that the worst thing that could happen is the reliving of that pain. That's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that could happen is that we live without the Lord. Look, this world is so traumatizing, so broken, that no one makes it out alive. It kills all of us. And what happens with these inner vows or oaths or promises, they don't protect you. They paralyze you. You've got to look through your suffering to your Savior. Let me say this. Everything you've been through will be worth it. Everything that you've endured will be in your past. Everything that you enjoy will be in your future. And you will be rewarded for all the suffering you go through. Our Savior sees and knows all. So rather than worrying, we're worshiping. Rather than fighting and struggling, we're surrendering. Rather than demanding, we are trusting. James says, for those who stand firm, there is a blessing. Be patient. Because there is compassion and mercy in the presence of God. Look, Jesus has been where you are. He knows what you need. And he's waiting for you on the other side. So look through your suffering to the resurrection. I know that my Redeemer lives right now. And I know that one day his feet will stand upon the earth and my dead body and your dead body will rise from the grave and we're going to see him face to face. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.